Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, uh, here today with lots of great things to talk about, things happening in the marijuana world, things happening in the music world, uh, a fish review, uh, and a special visit uh, from my co-host Jim Marty's son, Jack, and his bandmates in Squerve, uh, who are really starting to make the scene out in Colorado and are kind enough to give us a few minutes of their time today to uh, tell us what it's all about. And we'll be, we'll be jumping out to them in a few minutes, so uh, stay tuned. There's lots of great things we have here today. But uh, first of all, Jim, nice to uh, chat with you again. Is all going well for you? Yes, things are hot here in Denver. Yeah, uh, same here. I'll be talking about Deer Creek in a few minutes. That that was a scorcher too, both temperature and trace. So uh, it made for a good couple of nights. And of course, my other co-host, uh, Rob Hunt, uh, currently talking to us live from New York. Uh, Rob, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, Larry. Not too happy that Jazz Fest got canceled. So you know, it's still kind of reeling from uh, the the one show that I thought I was going to catch this fall now being shut down due to uh, rampant COVID in Louisiana. So other than that, I'm doing all right. Okay. Well, I unfortunately did, did get canceled, and, and that is also on our list of topics to address today because it's too large to ignore, uh, both in terms of what it means for that particular festival uh, and, of course, what it means for the music industry in general uh, and whether that's a direction that we're going in. But before we get to all of that great music stuff, what I think uh, we should do is start out with uh, some news on the marijuana side, as, as we often like to do here, guys. And, uh, Rob, I'm going to turn to you to start off and give us some of the uh, background and details on what you know about what's going on uh, with some new uh, numbers being reported by multi-state operator uh, GTI that's based uh, right here in Illinois. Sure. Well, I mean, as everyone knows right now, it's earnings season, so we're going to see the large, a lot of the largest cannabis companies start reporting in the next week. Uh, the first major one to report uh, came out uh, late last week which was uh, GTI. Um, so on Thursday of, of last week, or Wednesday of last week, GTI came out and said they have um, put up $221.9 million, just shy of $222 million in top-line revenue for Q2 of 2021. Um, that came in from all 12 states that it operates in. Its uh, net income more than doubled from a year-over-year to $23.3 million in an increase of, uh, of net income. Uh, as far as operating EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, they uh, did $79.3 million for the second quarter in earnings. So again, you know you have to remember that 280E takes a big chunk out of that 79.3, but they still earned 23.3 to the bottom line. So if you want to talk about you know a company that is showing you know what can be done in cannabis by next quarter, I'd expect that they're pushing north of $250 million in top-line sales, which means they'd be on a run rate for more than a billion dollars a year. So for all the people that are you know, worried that cannabis is not um, you know, really as successful as, as they once had thought and that you know, there's too much hype and too much blue sky attached to some of these companies, uh, I'm here to tell you that uh, that is not the case right now. And there's companies like GTI, Cureleaf, Trueleaf, and Cresco that will certainly be showing you, you know, what is possible right now. So uh, look out for, you know, later this week, you'll see Cureleaf. Cureleaf will report, um, I think, today, uh, Monday. And, um, and Trueleaf, I think, reports, um, uh, they'll, they'll already reported also. So watch those closely and, and start looking at the earnings of the biggest companies. And then think about, you know, where you want to put your entry into the industry because uh, there are still plenty of places and none of these guys are, are done. You know, there's, there's still increasing revenue quarter over quarter. 
they're still increasing net earnings quarter over quarter. So you might think some of these companies are expensive. Uh, just wait until having this conversation a year from today. Well, that's all very good news for the industry. Um, good to see a large, uh, we call them MSOs, multi-state operators, uh, showing an after-tax profit. You know, when public companies report, and you said 29 million of earnings, that is an after-tax basis. The 79 million would be before taxes. So it shows you what a bite 280E does take out of it. But as I've been saying on this show and to my clients, you can still be profitable in spite of 280E. You have to really control your costs and get good margins. But you can be profitable on an after-tax basis despite not being able to take all your deductions. Rob uh, or Jim, a question I want to throw out there, and I know we've discussed this in the past, but you know, if I'm sitting around listening to this right now and I'm somebody here in Illinois who's just waiting to find out whether or not I got an adult use license and I've got my team of five guys and we've got our group of investors and we're going to go open up our dispensary and, you know, venture out there in the world or, or, or uh, for the people, you know, that are just getting like their craft grow licenses, what chance do they really have to compete in a market, say, like Illinois that's home to Cresco, GTI, Revolution, all of these? How do these companies move forward and make a profit? Well, that's a very good question, uh, especially on your craft licenses, which limits your cultivation to what, I think, 10,000 square feet? Well, it starts at five, but eventually over a three-year period, you can grow to a total of 14. So that does make it tough to compete, but again, you it's all about how much it costs you to grow a pound. So you have to be able to grow a pound for around $500. If your cost to grow a pound is $1,000 or $1,200, uh, it's probably going to be very difficult to show a profit and survive. So you can survive if you're small, even if um, you're limited in your square footage. If you can get that cost per pound down to $500 and sell it for $2,000, you can be profitable on an after-tax basis. So that's really interesting, Jim, because then what you're telling us is that there is a pathway forward for smaller businesses. Uh, they just have to be able to uh, be efficient in what they do uh, and provide service in a way that will uh, bring customers in. And well, I guess you could say that's true for any business. Uh, you know, in this industry, I, I just leaving my office and driving home, I drive by three Cureleaf dispensaries, one larger than the next. And, you know, as a consumer, while well, I say, boy, that's great. You know, as a new license holder who wants to come up here on the North Shore of Chicago, you know, you say, boy, where, how, how do I fit into all of that? And where do I go to really make my mark? So it's going to be interesting because um, with still one more lottery drawing set of drawings to go here in Illinois, we're going to have upwards of close to about 125 or 150 new dispensaries being granted licenses that are all going to be, you know, heading out there looking for their locations and, you know, trying to tap into this market. And I'm very excited to see what that does for selection for the consumer, but even more importantly for price. Well, one last comment on this issue. What really drives up your cost to grow a pound is if you have crop failures. Are you testing for mold or mildew or other contaminants, you know, and you have to throw away a crop or two, that's going to, on an annual basis, really drive up your cost to grow a pound. So you really need skilled cultivators. It really starts with the skilled cultivator because if you can grow it and it tests out properly, then uh, you're going to sell it. Okay, well, good, because I know a lot of people out there that are getting licenses, and I would love to be able to see them succeed and, uh, uh, and really move forward. But along those lines, Jim, something you had mentioned to us that I want to follow back up with you, what we're seeing right now, or at least what you've been seeing right now, is a lot of your clients 
all of a sudden losing bank accounts that they had established. And you're seeing a lot of them happening in a short period of time. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it seems like over the last uh, two or three weeks, um, several of our clients have lost checking accounts. And it's mostly been people who are flying under the radar, not really letting their bank know they're in the cannabis business. Um, So three or four of uh, clients, and I've heard of others outside my client base, uh, getting notifications. So inside the banking industry, there's a lot of scrutiny going on to, no pun intended, weed out these cannabis customers who did not tell their bank they're in the cannabis business. And it's terribly inconvenient. All of a sudden, they can't make pay payroll. They have to get a new ATM. Uh, all their uh, online bill paying is taken away. So it's a huge inconvenience. And yet it's happening. Can you think of any reason why we're seeing this 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 little spate of bank uh, rejections all of a sudden happening at one time is there is there anything about the current administration that suggests this might be happening that might be something to do with it um, th- that they're pushing it but the point for the um, cannabis business is be upfront with your bank uh, don't say you're a pizza shop or a florist shop it will catch up with you eventually um, you know look for the banks in your in your state that are banking cannabis openly it, it's expensive. It's about $5,000 a month to have a checking account in a cannabis-friendly bank. And the reason for that is they're not being greedy. Um, the bank has to set up a large internal compliance department in order to do that. So the big one here in Colorado is um, Safe Harbor Credit Union, and they're very selective. They have a very thick package of papers you have to fill out just to apply, and they may or may not accept you. So... Uh, and we don't have banking, as I like to say. You're lucky if you have a checking account. There's no loans. There's no MasterCard Visa. There's no lines of credit. There's no equipment financing. So, yeah, let's hope something happens in Congress. We'll see. They're all about to go on their August vacation, so I don't see, I don't see much happening uh, before next year's midterms, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so we may go back, Larry, to where we were, you know, 10 years ago where, you know, we got paid in cash a lot, which is very dangerous and very inconvenient. Yes, it is. So you're right. I hope that that will, uh, these changes will happen because that, that's really, in my experience, one of the most frustrating parts about dealing with this industry is, is you know, on the one hand, while we have billion dollar deals going on, <laughs> the basic members of the industry can't get standard banking services. It, it's just, it's 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 absurd to think that uh, you know an industry that this that's this public and this successful uh, still has to you know use its mattresses and old shoe boxes uh, to hold the daily you know proceeds. It's uh, it's something that has to change. It's just not tenable. Um, before we switch over to music, Rob, I know last week uh, we talked a little bit about. Uh, uh, Mario Cuomo and uh, uh, his you're, position you're, on... Uh, you're, you're dating yourself, Larry. Andrew Cuomo. Mario is his father. Sorry, excuse me. Uh, you're right, I am dating myself. At least I didn't mention the one who's on CNN. So, uh, Andrew Cuomo, yes. And uh, while we might have you know, been uh, wondering last week, now we know he, he is out, he has resigned. And as he steps away and the lieutenant governor, uh, who are... Uh, producer Dan Humiston tells us is from Buffalo, 
Buffalo, New York, his backyard. Uh, I'm not very familiar with her position on cannabis. New York is just rolling out its program to a lot of fanfare. What do you hear? What is your sense as to what this change in leadership at the top of New York state government will or will not do to the state's new program? I mean, look, I think the, uh, the, the woman that's taking over for Cuomo, uh, which is the, the current lieutenant governor, I think she is um, known to be uh, pretty progressive. So I can't imagine that she's going to take a tougher position on campus than, uh, than, than Andrew did. But uh, it's always, you know, sort of a crapshoot when you go through an administration change. You know, you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, all the work that's been done in the governor's mansion to date on this new program now needs to be rethought. Uh, you know, there's new interpretations that need to be, uh, need to be gone through. And uh, again, we've seen this happen. I mean, in your in your state of Illinois, we watched it happen when the transition from uh, from whoever was predating Rauner to Rauner, and then uh, you know from him to, uh, to yeah, exactly uh, from Quinn to Rauner, and then Rauner to Pritzker. Those were three very different people with three very different ideas about how cannabis should be uh, should be handled. You know, uh, Quinn was relatively pro. Rauner came in very anti, and eventually, you know, kind of uh, flipped over and said, "Okay, I'm not going to sunset this program, and I'm going to allow it to proliferate." And then ultimately you had Pritzker that ran on legalization. So it's, you know, it, it's always a change when you see a, a change in governor. Um, you know, the, the bigger question is, what happens if, if this happens in other states, larger states? I mean, we're facing a potential recall right now of Gavin Newsom in California. And if that recall happens, then very likely the, uh, the governor might be a Republican. So, you know, do you see California roll back? And uh, if it does, you know, that, that's much different than Andrew Cuomo leaving and being replaced by a more progressive member of the same party. Um, so, again, it's, you know, politics, politics, politics when it comes to cannabis legislation. But these are all important things that we need to be watching for in understanding what happens as, you know, someone's in a transitional period like New York is right now. Of what does that mean for the industry? What does it mean for the future of the industry? And, you know, will it accelerate it? Will it retard it? You know, how is it going to work? So, uh, you know, keep, keep, your, keep your ears open on the New York question because there's a lot to be decided still. Okay. Something for us to uh, certainly monitor as we go forward. Having said that, uh, I think it's time to take a quick swing over onto the music side because, quite frankly, we have so much to talk about today uh, that I want to make sure we get it all in, uh, including uh, a few minutes with uh, uh, Jim Marty's son, Jack, and his band, Squerve. Uh, but I want to start off by talking about fish. Um, I saw fish this past weekend, or I guess by the time this airs, it'll already be uh, two weekends ago at Deer Creek, uh, which we'll always call Deer Creek, but apparently is now known as the Ruoff Music Center, although nobody's bothered to find out who Ruoff is. We just call it Deer Creek and go from there. And I found that most of the people in Indiana call it Deer Creek as well, so it works out just fine. Uh, we met, I missed the Friday show, unfortunately, and I, I say unfortunately because I, as I was saying to you guys beforehand, there was a period of time when I was really just first starting to go to fish shows, <clears throat> and it was kind of fun and a nice change of pace because other than like going to the dead where I was so caught up on every song they were going to play and was I going to hear this, was I going to hear that, and on and on and on with fish, it was all so new for me that I was just happy whatever they played as long as it was good, but I've now gotten to the point where I know the songs well enough that I start checking the set lists. And sure enough, I missed the Friday show and they had a great Carini, Wolfman, Sand and Lawn Boy opener, all tunes that I really love and that I would love to hear. Um, uh, and just a great show. And everybody who was there raved about how, how hot they sounded. And I actually got to listen to it on my radio while driving down on Saturday for the Saturday night show, uh, which 
was a great show as well. Started maybe a little bit on the slow side, at, 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 uh, at least for me, uh, as I as I really come into my uh, my uh, my my fish uh, persona. But crowd control and poor heart are songs that uh, you know it was it was good walk in music for me. But then they dived into MoMA dance, back on the train, got into bouncing around the room, which just for. Uh, Historic Sake was the first fish tune that I ever really listened to when I bought the original Live Fish double CD, and my kids loved it, so we'd play that song over and over. Uh, Yamar was great. Uh, Stash is always a great tune, a great cavern to close. And the second set started off uh, fantastic as well, but what really took the second set to the next level for me, and I had not seen them do this before, uh, was to play one of their Halloween covers and uh, Cross-Eyed and Painless, uh, Remain in Lights, one of my all-time favorite albums. I have the original vinyl when it came out in 1980 and I was in college. Um, and to hear them play it finally uh, was fantastic. They sounded great doing it. You can find it on YouTube. Um, you know, John has a great time with the lead. Trey's having a great time on the piano. And Paige is just doing his best to keep up with all of them. But it really took the show, I think, down uh, kind of up to another level. Uh, led into a kind of uh, mid-set down with disease that was great. Waiting in the Velvet Sea and Possum. All really, really solid. And then the encore, Drift While You're Sleeping, I have to confess, is not a tune I know. So for me, it was a little bit of a letdown. Uh, I know that a lot of the deadheads really, uh, the fishheads really liked it. So... I'll accept it for that. Um, but this all really led into the Sunday night show, guys. And I, I don't know how to describe it because I haven't seen enough fish shows. But I've I've heard some recordings. And I know that every now and then, Trey just kind of has this night when he gets silly. And, and I don't mean, you know, silly like he can't do anything, but silly like... He starts taking songs and mashing them together and jumping all around and just playing with you. And, you know, they started the second set with a bathtub gin that I thought was right on. And they were just going along and uh, slipped over into waves, which was a good tune. And the next thing I know, he's stepping up to the microphone and singing the opening lyrics for Ghost. But I, I hadn't heard the, the traditional musical lead-in. And then about a minute and a half into Ghost, he's jumping over into Sneaking Sally Through the Alley. And then into 20 Years Later, and then into Waste, and then into Twist, and then into Maka Super Policeman, and back into Twist, and back, and all of this back and forth, and he'd go back into Ghost, and I've never told you the story of Sally, or the story of the policeman. And that basically took it all the way through to the very end, until uh, most events aren't planned and more. But then at the very end, he even slid back into bathtub gin for a minute. And I, I love all of those tunes. I would have been happy to hear any of those tunes played out. But I just kind of liked it because I suspect it's not the kind of thing you necessarily see on a nightly basis with Fish. And when he kind of gets in that playful mood to just go all over the place, you just kind of roll with it. So I've seen him do that too, uh, second set of a third three-night run. Uh, they're ready to get on the tour bus again, and they start goofing around. So, yeah, I've seen that in in the past as well. It worked out, but you know, but what I, it was it was great music all the way through, and 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 again, it kind of reaffirms for me this idea that you know maybe their lyrics are a little bit silly, and maybe they're a little bit goofy, but they play so damn well, it just doesn't matter. Uh, you know, the quality of music that they put out is is right up there, and um, you know, I have to say, I'm a late blooming fish fan, but. Uh, it's fun, and I'm pissed off because two nights later in Hershey they played 
um, uh, backwards down the number line, which I love, the lizards, which I love and haven't seen yet, character zero, which I've seen too much of, but I love, and the encore in her, she was rock and roll, which as much as I love Remain in Light, I, I may love Loaded even more, and would have loved to have heard them do a version of rock and roll, but as I told my wife, it'll just get us back out to more shows down the road, and hopefully there will be more shows for them, um, and, and we'll see what happens. Uh, before we touch on that, though, I wanted to, uh, we've been doing this a little bit lately, and I think this is a great place to do it, is is it's kind of segueing from fish into the fact that they were playing the show at Deer Creek and what the Deer Creek theater, you know, really means to the jam world, especially to fish fans. And prior to that, to grateful dead fans. And, uh, at least as far as the dead were concerned, Deer Creek was both the site of some of the dead's most amazing music, as well as some of the most disappointing behavior, uh, by deadheads, uh, you know, probably throughout the course and history of, of the grateful dead. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 it kind of holds a, a special place in that, that history. Um, but you know, fish obviously loves to come back to this place. Rob, I know you've been there a couple of times. What is it about Deer Creek? Is it, is it the size, the intimacy? Uh, it, you know, it sure in heck isn't the local police force who, you know, kind of make it their point to be in everybody's nose all night. But why do these bands love it? What's, what's so great about that place? Yeah, I think there's something about a great shed in the middle of a cornfield that uh, has fantastic sound that's always fun. You know, Deer Creek should not be where it is. You think about all the other great sheds in America, uh, all the great amphitheaters, and for the most part, they've either got, you know, terrific vistas the way the Gorge or Red Rocks does, or they've got um, a, a real population that surrounds them the way, like, you know, Shoreline does or the Tweeter Center, whatever it's called, you know, Great Woods in, in Massachusetts. You know, usually they're, they're in metropolitan areas, and it's a great, you know, alternative summertime venue to, you know, playing in a, um, in a sports arena. But Deer Creek, there's no rhyme or reason for that place being where it is. It's just literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, it's it's a, just a, a you're down dirt roads, and all of a sudden you come to this place, and you're like, there it is, Deer Creek. And for some reason, bands love playing it. And I, I think the uh, you know the, the steepness of the lawn is mellow. The um, the sort of the the sunken way they've built the other uh, venue, so it kind of drops down instead of being up on a on a hill the way like an alpine is. It's just. Um, it's it's just a cool way to build a venue, and it's the right size. I think Deer Creek holds, I want to say, you know, around 20,000, 22,000 people. So it's it's a great size for a venue. The lawn is um, is big enough. But, uh, you know, I, I've always had a good time there. And, you know, the, the other fun part is after the show, uh, most people camp. You know, most people stay in the area. There's really no place to go afterwards. So it's, you know, lots of reasons to uh, to get together with your friends and say, let's go have, you know, a weekend at Deer Creek. Well, I think that's true. Um, I was with my wife and uh, some other people, so we decided we weren't going to cap, and we got a motel room not too far away. Uh, but the challenge, of course, for us was just finding a place where you could eat after the show because there aren't a lot of places, and the whole crowd comes pouring out. But uh, we did manage to find our way to a, uh, uh, a lovely uh, waffle house in uh, Pendleton, Indiana, which is not too far away. You just have to know that it's there. And, and at this point, I have to give a special shout-out to my son Matthew's good buddy, Kevin, uh, Kevin Kevin commandeered these tickets for us, uh, got the hotel reservations for us, and was on target enough to clue me into the Waffle House so that Sunday night after the show, uh, we were right there. And, and before, you know, people even were outside of the parking lot, we were already eating our All-American Grand Slam breakfast or whatever they serve there at midnight. And 
you know, there, there's few places in the world I think you can go after a great dead or fish show besides Waffle House to just really fit the bill in terms of the location, the, 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 the interior design and what you're dealing with, uh, you know, the food and, and the price. It's just, you know, it's kind of the perfect combination. So, yeah, we, we had a great time there. Um, uh, I saw the dead there in 89 and 90, uh, which were tremendous shows. I missed the 91 show, uh, from which our musical clip is going to come in a minute and I'll let Rob introduce it. Um, but, but I, I want to play that musical clip. And then before we leave this topic, Rob, I want to jump ahead, uh, to 94 or really 95 and kind of what went down and, and the role you wound up playing in all of it. Yeah, I was going to say, before you do, just setting it up, uh, what we're going to listen to is from um, June the 7th, 1991, from Deer Creek. Uh, it was a two-night run. Um, and if people remember kind of, you know, Standing on the Moon, which I think I think debuted in 88, uh, but didn't really start catching fire until about 1991. And, you know, this was before before they started doing the, uh, the, the Be With Yous into a, a jam and then a reprise of Be With Yous. The, the first iteration of it was just the, uh, the, the be with yous into a, um, a really soaring jam. And uh, if you were to look at the ones, you know, if you say, what was the first great standing in the moon? I would say that the, this June 7th, 1991 from Deer Creek is probably the one that became like the staple for at least all of my friends for at least two or three more years until the ones you started seeing in 93, 94, 95. I can agree with that. Um, unfortunately, I missed 91. My uh, wife was eight and a half months pregnant, and she was not too keen on me dashing off to a cornfield in the middle of Iowa, uh, of Indiana, excuse me, uh, for a couple of days while she was on the cusp of having our first son. So I had to limit that tour to seeing them at Soldier Field when they came there for one night, uh, but, but, but missed all the fun at Deer Creek. Um, but yeah, let's hear this Standing on the Moon, because it's a great tune, and that would be the kind of place I think that would inspire Jerry. Not too much to say. That's pretty awesome. Yes. Speaking of, go to leave Deer Creek, Larry. Was um, it at full capacity? It was at full capacity, Jim. Um, and it was interesting because they had asked fans to wear masks. Uh, a lot of fans did not wear masks. I don't think it was so much a political statement as much as it was comfort. And, you know, quite frankly, there was quite a bit of discussion in my section of the seats on Sunday night when they opened up with what I assume is a new tune, Sigma Oasis, with a line that keeps going, take your mask off, take your mask off, take your mask off and live free. And, you know, we were thinking, is that really the line you want to be singing to a crowd uh, that's, you know, probably kind of ambivalent at best about trying to wear a mask during a concert? Um, but I heard that there was a big commotion about it at Hershey last night and that tonight, supposedly, they're going to be taking a much stronger stand in uh, you know, telling people that they need to have masks. Um, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see where that goes. And that kind of leads us into the next topic, which is, 
that uh, Jazz Fest, which, you know, if not the oldest music festival uh, that's still going on, uh, you know, has certainly become one of the most famous and well-known, if for no other reason, just because of its tremendous location and uh, the quality of bands that it pulls in. And I like to refer to it as Lollapalooza for adults. And you can get real food at the campground. Uh, You don't have to just eat the hot dogs and cold cheese pizza that they have. Um, but Jazz Fest, uh, we just found out over the weekend for this year has been canceled again. It was canceled in 2020. Uh, they tried to reschedule it for the spring of 21, but when that wasn't going to happen, they pushed it off to October of this year, feeling reasonably certain that by then, uh, things would be under control enough that they would be able to have it. And although I don't know the entire lineup, I know it's one of the best ones they've had in years. We're going to have Dead and Company, the Rolling Stones, uh, a number of other great, great bands, and uh, now it's it's all going to go by the side. And Jim, uh, my first question is to you because you know I I know you were talking all about going down there. You had your tickets. Uh, you were all set. It was a big big event for you. Uh, you were going to make up for not being able to go last year. What happens now? Well, I'm probably still going to go anyway. I was going to work there with out of our Louisiana office, our New, our New Orleans office that week. So I'm probably going to go anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know what the issue is or what their counts are. Um, you know, for one reason or another, the, the minority population is very against vaccination. Um, so they have a lot of unvaccinated people down there. Um, so that might be leading to it. I always give a little update on Colorado. And yeah, we are up now to about 500 hospitalizations. It was 200, then it was 300, then it was 400, and now it's 500. But that's still out of a population of 6.5 million people, and we're fully open. Uh, the bars are jammed every night. The bands are playing. Red Rocks has shows every night of 10,000 people. So I don't know. I don't want to get political, but I think at some point we just have to learn to live with this like we live with the flu and the common cold. I hear you. Um, you know, and, and at the same time, uh, the big bike festival is going on up in South Dakota, so the world is certainly moving forward uh, with a lot of events. Um, I haven't read the full story on Jazz Fest yet, so I, I can't speak to uh, specifically what their concerns were. But I, I do note, as you say, that there's parts of the South where uh, the Delta variant has been spreading. And I guess uh, they probably decided that the risk just wasn't worth it. Um, Rob, are these decisions typically made by the producers, by the artists, or is there some you know, combination of them sitting down and making the decision together? You know, From your experience, where do you see that going? Yeah, I mean, I think the artists definitely have a lot of uh, influence in it, but if a venue wants to make a venue decision, you know, they can certainly require it across the board and say, you know, any artist that's playing in our venue needs to mask up. Uh, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more venues do that. I mean, I think a lot of people jumped the gun thinking that we were, you know, behind this thing. Um, and uh, at, at this point, I think everyone's rethinking that. I mean, I'm, I'm watching schools make decisions now that are much different than what they were saying in May and June. But, you know, most venue operators right now, I think, are saying we're no longer going to cancel shows for the most part. But, you know, we're certainly going to put restrictions in place to make sure that our, our patrons are safe. Yeah, well, I guess that they've got to do something. And, you know, that'll be, you know, very interesting to see um, how they pull it off. Uh, I was going to say, if you look at J- Jason Isabel just announced that he will not play any venues where it's not required to wear a mask. So, you know, there are definitely artists out there that are that are saying, you know, if you can't prove, you know, that our audience is safe, then I won't play your venue. 
So they're requiring the venue, any venue they play, that it's a venue decision, but driven by the artist's uh, decisions. When you were, uh, you know, just talking about, you know, the need to keep people safe and the artists, that reminded me that I was doing a lead-in to you having a role with the Grateful Dead in 1995, particularly because Deer Creek, uh, and I believe you were at the show that year, uh, had an experience that's, that's, you know, got a, a lot of really negative press at the time. Uh, and maybe you can fill us in very briefly again on what happened and then uh, what ultimately the dead did and how, you know, you were kind of a, uh, a um, you know, a participant, uh, even if I was just a bit player in history there. Sure. I mean, let's preface this by saying that I think I was more of an observer than anything, but uh, very lucky to have some role in participation. Um, and I wish I hadn't. You know, the, the summer of 95, summer tour for the Grateful Dead, if anyone that remembers that tour, like anything that could have gone wrong did. And uh, I think a lot of people refer to it as the cursed tour. Everything from, uh, you know, campground um, uh, scaffoldings collapsing, or I think uh, upper deck porches collapsing, to death threats against Garcia, um, to, you know, having what happened at Deer Creek, which was the second time on that tour where there was basically a riot. Um, Highgate, Vermont being the first one where they kicked all the, uh, the, the gates down and everyone walked in at Highgate, you know, an extra 40 or 50,000 people went to that show. But at Deer Creek, was, it was kind of a bit more menacing. It was uh, to the point where they're smashing down the back of the venue, you know, the huge wall at the back of the venue, and they're knocking over porta-potties while people were still in them and trampling to get into the venue to the point that the band's like, you know, we're not sure we can you know, continue playing. And ultimately, they made the decision between themselves and the local Noblesville, Indiana Police Department that they were going to pull the plug on the second night. So on that second night, which should have been night two of Deer Creek, um, I happened to be staying in the same hotel as the band. And uh, the band reached out to a lot of their, their buddies that you know, always would stay in the same hotel if they would and said, all right, we need to do something about this. And uh, we're calling it you know, kind of an, an all-hands meeting. And they, they took over the ballroom of the hotel and invited everyone that was in the hotel that was you know, sort of invited by, uh, you know, call it the extended family of the Grateful Dead, to come in and have a meeting to say, you know, how do we fix this? How do we fix the scene? Because this is untenable. Like, we, we can't go on playing if we don't, you know, figure out a way to address this. So I was invited to that meeting, and I sat there with, you know, about 150 other people and sitting in folding uh, chairs and, you know, sort of with a moderator and a group. And I think it was um, uh, uh, Dennis McNally that was helping to lead that. And taking notes about, you know, what can we do to make this a better scene? What can we do to, to educate the younger kids? How do we, you know, get people away from coming to our shows that aren't there to see the music but are just there to cause trouble? Um, you know, ultimately it didn't make much difference. After, you know, a few more shows, there, there was no more Grateful Dead tour. But the result of that was uh, a letter that came out that was passed out at the next venue that was, you know, Dear Deadheads. And saying, if you guys don't figure out a way to get this together, we're going to have to stop playing and we're going to have to make a decision that none of us want to make. But this is the, it was the first time ever where in the parking lot you had you know a, a leaflet passed out to everyone, anyone that would take one, saying, here's our situation, you know, please, for the sake of the music, like, cut this shit out. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was there for, as I said, you know, not any place I wanted to be. Uh, and I hope that doesn't happen to Fish, and I hope it doesn't happen to Panic, and I hope it doesn't happen to, you know, Dave Matthews Band and any other touring professionals that have a, a really huge fan base. Uh, because it's, it, it's not fair to the artists, it's not fair to the people that are there to see the music, and that's ultimately not, like, that's not why we go to shows. So, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember any of that stuff, Larry. I think you probably were at some of the shows right afterwards. You're certainly, certainly in Chicago. Um, Jim, yes. you probably missed that, because you, you know, um, the, the West Coast part of that tour was earlier, but, uh, but that was, you know, it was a really shitty way to, to, to end Grateful Dead tour. The last five or six nights, 
of you know ninety five summer tour, the final shows of, of the Grateful Dead, were you know marred by all sorts of bad shit. Yep, and uh, yes, I didn't go to the ninety five summer tour, but I did see that letter came across my computer screen. I think. So at any rate, that it was uh, it was an unfortunate moment in Grateful Dead history. I can report uh, from a very positive perspective that uh, while the the demand for the fish tickets in at, at Deer Creek was very high, uh, and there were large crowds, uh, there was nothing close to uh, that kind of a scene. And whether it's just because fish hasn't you know yet drawn that level of a crowd, or whether it's because the fish heads are a little more sane and uh, uh, understanding about what they can and cannot do. Either way, uh, you know, I, I thought that uh, it was just nice to be back in a place like Deer Creek again, seeing live music, and hopefully we'll be able to do it for a long time. Right before the hiatus for fish, uh, we had our share of problems at Red Rocks. Red Rocks holds 9,500 people. Bands get too big for it. We had people, you know, not rioting, but stopping traffic in the middle of Mor- downtown Morrison, which is the town Red Rocks is in. Anyway, uh, Moving on to some other musical events, I did get my Dick's Picks 39. Yeah, Dick's Picks 39 is out, and that's nice to see. Um, what I'd like to do on that, Jim, is give that a more thorough listening, and maybe we can pick up on that next week, because uh, there's a lot of good stuff on that album that I want to go through. And before we run out of time today, I want to make sure that we have a chance uh, to really chat with your son and uh, and his band Squerve. Uh, and about his band Squerve, because, you know, here's the thing. Uh, as I'm sitting there watching Fish, part of my thought process was, you know, I, I actually feel kind of lucky, right? I mean, uh, for me, that whole period of my life was the Grateful Dead. And that's, you know, the, the band that I grew up with. And that was the jam band that, that did it all for me. And yes, it was inevitable that the Grateful Dead weren't going to be around forever. And eventually they weren't. And although I was one of the latecomers, to a band like Fish, it was wonderful to know that, that Fish is was there and is there, and you can still go to Deer Creek, and if it's Trey and his band up there, you know, jamming away, uh, quite frankly, it, it was almost just as much fun as if it was Jerry and the boys, uh, and that's great to see. But after after Trey, uh, you know, and maybe after widespread panic, who were, you know, probably Fish's contemporary in terms of age and years of experience on the road, you know, who is the next young, hot band that's going to really come on the scene. I know we've talked about Goose, and I know we've talked about a couple of other bands, but why not Squerve, or why not a band that we haven't even heard of yet? So, Jim, let me turn this over to you, and you can introduce your son and his bandmates. All right, I'm going to let them introduce themselves and say what instrument they play. Um, And the name of the band is Squerve, S-Q-W-E-R-V. And how did you get that name? I guess I can take that one. <laughs> My name is Guy. I'm uh, the guitar player and I guess main vocalist for our band. Um, but we got the name uh, in kind of a, I guess, uneventful way, but it's one that's kind of dear to me. One of my good high school friends, um, you know, and we used to just drive around kind of getting stoned back in our hometown. He would make funny noises when he'd take, turn, uh, take corners a little too hot. And one of those was Squerve when he kind of <laughs> You know, hit on the brakes a little hard and it'd be kind of a sketchy moment, but uh, we got a gig a few years later out here once we were in our first formation of the band and we needed a band name because we didn't have one yet. We already had a gig, so we were just blurting things out and that ended up sticking. And uh, it's kind of been nice because it's it's totally undefined. It's, it's nice to have a band name that isn't a, um, something that doesn't automatically bring up meaning in people's minds. So. 
we like to think that um, kind of is representative of our music where we can be open-ended and abstract and not be pigeonholed into any uh, specific genre or meaning. And it's Guy Free? Yeah, Friedenland. Friedenland. Yeah, Norwegian last name. And then, of course, you have Jack Marty, and then Caden. Yeah, Caden Kramer. Kramer. Uh, I play the bass guitar. And how did you, how did you guys get together? I'll, I'll turn that one over to Jack. Actually, this is a question for them because I'm a I joined late in the band, so yeah. I actually don't know the origins. Well, this is, I think this is a good moment. Me and Caden here. Uh, it's kind of funny. I I, I grew up as a really big Doors fan, and uh, we were I was at music school here at CU Denver, and I. Had, was in my first class actually, and this guy walked in. And he was wearing a Doors shirt. He had his big long rock and roll hair, which he still has. And this was probably what almost six years ago now. And I was like, I'm gonna be in a band with that dude one day. It just kind of popped in my head. And you know, we jammed a little bit here and there. It didn't happen right away, but after about a year, we started playing together. And here we are, still in a band. And since we've uh, had a change in. Lineup, and now we have Jack Marty here on the keys, and um, our drummer Zach Volgarelli, who couldn't be with us here today. But and so, Jack, tell me about how you got into this a little bit later. Then, yeah, I just I knew of the bands uh, just through Facebook and the local scene, and I think the video of Boogie with You popped up on my Facebook, and I saw they didn't have a keys player, so I reached out to who's now the old guitar player, Kai reached out to him, asked if I could just come sit in our practice one day. And they agreed to it, and um, I came down, and it worked well, and I kind of just never left. kind of just kept going practice. Yeah, and now um, you've got a, your first CD and some videos to go along with it, mm -hmm. and uh, you're getting a lot of good gigs around the Denver metro area. Uh, tell me what kind of uh, gigs you've been getting, what kind of crowds you've been drawing. Yeah, so... Well, we put out the um, record called Seed. It was a 10-song album that we recorded over the course of the pandemic um, at a place called FTM Studios here in Denver. And since we've been just playing, you know, as many gigs as we can now that shows are back and um, playing all around Colorado, Denver, Fort Collins, Boulder, um, Evergreen, out in the mountains, we played up in Allen's Park recently, up in Lyons, so just anywhere we really can, but um, bigger venues here in Denver would be Cervantes. Um, got that coming up in the fall. Yeah, got a big one coming up here. October 14th? Yeah, Saturday, I believe it's October 14th or that weekend, whatever Saturday that is there. Um, but yeah, we've got a cool live video coming soon too. We just recorded in a live studio up at Icebox Studios. So. And do you consider yourselves a jam band? <laughs> Something we talked, we had a meeting about <laughs> our booking agent yeah. <laughs> just recently. Yes, we do. Um, because I think for a while we tried to uh, deny that fact or something just because it can kind of bring up uh, connotations in people's heads, you know. But we, we kind of just embrace it now because we do love um, improvisation and it's a huge part of our sound. And we're obviously inspired by Grateful Dead and Fish and so many other big bands like that. So. Yeah, well, haven't seen you guys several times. Uh, you really are hitting the groove. You've got some good good songs going. Um, you don't do that many covers. You do mostly original music. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, we'll play like one or two covers, maybe a show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the songwriters of the group. Uh, guy, 
has written most of them. Yeah, I would say. We all we all collaborate on them though. Once the song makes it off the acoustic guitar and once it is away from its skeleton form, I bring it to the band a lot of times or whoever has the full song because we all have original compositions. Minus, I guess, the drummer, minus Zach, but, you know, um, we all, we all, I guess, write our parts to the Bare Bones song, so it's mm-hmm. not like, yeah, it's not like they're fully composed, um, you know, before that. And I think some of the songs on the, the new CD have hit potential. What are some of your favorites? Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. Um, I think, I think one of my personal favorites is the Strange Satisfaction song, um, it's, I think the ninth track on there, kind of just a more melancholic, um, reflective song. and doesn't actually really even have a solo in it anywhere, which is one of the few on the album like that, but yeah. So I think we're going to listen to some Squirb music. What song, What tell, guys, give us a setup on this. What song are we playing? Um, yeah, so this is from an excerpt of, at least from what I heard, it's from our Camera Gems uh, live stream back in February. Um, the songs it's just an excerpt of Echoes, you know, kind of coming out of the jam. Um, and Echoes is the name of the song? Echoes yeah. of Ourselves is uh, the full name of the song. Echoes of Ourselves. All right, let's hear it. Very good. That's some good guitar playing there. I could see girls twirl into that music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah, well, thank you guys. Yeah, this is a, it was a fun one. All right. So before we go, is there anything else you guys would like to uh, talk Here, about? Uh, I'm sorry. Tell me. Tell us again the name of the album. Seed. Seed. And if our listeners would like to get a copy of it. Where do they go? Do you have a web page? How, how does somebody get a copy of Seed? Uh, yeah, it's all it's on all streaming uh, platforms, so Spotify, Apple Music. Um, you can find it there. We don't actually have any like physical copies yet. YouTube, YouTube it's all on there as well. Yeah. And it's S-Q-W-E-R-V. Mm-hmm. Squerve. Well, if you don't come out with an album, then you don't have to hire an artist to do the cover art, right? So you save on that. <laughs> we got yeah. cover art. It's all just digital nowadays, you know? Right. Yeah. That's true, too. Boy, God, that's a whole different world, right, Jim? But my, you know, my question for you guys is, um, there's so many bands out there these days that are, uh, you know, kind of more or less falling into this jam band category, some more heavily than others. How hard is it, you know, when you sit and you listen to some of this music and you've been influenced by this music, you know, to come up with something that doesn't just have that music creeping right back into it, right? To, to, to take a jam and go in a different direction and really create a unique sound. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that's just, you know, what musicians do, but, I, but that's the part that's always interested me, you know, because anytime in my head I think I can make up a tune, you know, the next thing I know I realize I'm just, you know, singing somebody else's song and I'm not really being creative at all. Yeah. Caden. Yeah, well, it, it helps to have a great songwriter in the band for sure with a very unique uh, sort of sound. 
Uh, I think it helps too that a lot of us really do come from different musical backgrounds as far as the things that we listen to as like children and stuff. But we all sort of come together on that jam band sort of thing. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's uh, good to be conscious about like when we are improvising and stuff. I think we have a, a, a theme of starting really small and getting getting really big and also not necessarily having it high energy all the time. I notice like a lot of jam bands is it's just constant guitar solos and constant just high energy pushing, pushing, pushing. And we have kind of been able to, uh, with a lot of practice, kind of settle back and be able to have uh, more of a mellow, interactive sound, I think, with... Uh, you know, whoever we're in front of, so. Yeah, and I would say, I would I would also add to that, that I think we're, like, why we were hesitant to call ourselves a jam band is we do focus on songwriting a lot. Like, mm-hmm. we do respect all our songs and put all our effort into making the song as complete as it can be. Uh, and then jamming kind of, I don't know if coming second nature is the right word, but, like, jamming just kind of subset of the song we created, so. Um, I think that was kind of our hesitation to call ourselves a jam band there, but it's true. And we we have several songs that we don't jam as well, um, uh, that we don't write with you know a jam in them necessarily. Um, so I think that's something that sets us apart as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. For for each one of you, really quickly, uh, who tell me who's the uh, one musician uh, who's inspired you the most, or who you think you know has most influenced your style of playing. We'll just go around. Caden? Yeah. Um, honestly, I would say back from my early days of listening, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, he's a guitar player, obviously, but I was really inspired by just the, the outlandish sounds that he could get out of his guitar and just the, free, the freeness of it was really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Cool. And, I mean, for me, you know, influence, influences have been always growing up, but, like... This is Jack, sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was actually a guitar player kind of originally in middle school. Uh, and so I love Jimmy Page. Always, I learned all Led Zeppelin songs and all that. And then high school, started listening to Grateful Dead and Fishmore. And then once I started playing piano um, and being, I was also in a Fish cover band as well. I would say Paige McConnell has been a huge influence on my style and playing. Um, yeah. I love that you guys mentioned like guitar players. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Um, I, I'm gonna say probably number one, just because it got me into other styles of music and made me like um, look at music in a, in a very different way compared to other people I listen to. Would probably be Derek Trucks. Um, but I, if I had to cop out and add more in there, I really love jazz. George Benson. Um, vocally, you know, and lyrically, I think, like as a songwriter, that was a big influence was obviously Jim Morrison, just the combination of kind of poetry into lyricism. So I would say, obviously, you know, Trey Anastasio is up there, but yeah. Sure. I was, as, a, as a guitar player, I mean, Derek Trucks to me is like, the, the, I mean, I, I love him. I think he's the greatest guitar player alive today. That, that, that just seems... That's a that's a high standard to live up to, man. If you can pull that off, God bless you. He's, he's, <laughs> he's my hero. I, I I just I never saw Dwayne Allman, but I think he's the closest thing that they'll ever be to him. And 
I, I just go to music just to sit there and watch him play guitar. It's, it's just, it's inspiring. Well, Jack and I were lucky enough to be at Red Rocks for Tedeschi Trucks a week or so ago. Jack, you want to give yeah, a quick uh, he, I mean, he, he blew my mind. I was, I was thoroughly impressed. Tell him about the second set. Well, once the rain stopped, you know, they came back and they pretty much played a private show at Red Rocks. It was like only, I bet there was like a thousand people there, if that even, in all Red Rocks. They played a full second set, and uh, they did like it was interesting. They like Susan left the stage for ten minutes, and they did whipping post, but they like had a jam going into whipping post, and they only did the second half of whipping post. But it was super cool. Um, they also did a sugary as well, um, Angel Montgomery right. and the sugary, but right. yep. it blew me away. I was yeah. the guy. The guy's an absolute legend. Well, you know what I always tell people is that. Without Derek Trucks, people would be watching Susan Tedeschi and saying, oh, my God, what an amazing guitar player she is. Because besides having a beautiful voice, I mean, she's like an amazing guitar player in her own right. You know, she just happens to be standing next to, like, you know, the Babe Ruth of guitar playing. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a tough standard to live up to. God bless her because, you know, they, they make a great team. But he's, he just blows me away. Zach, what about you? Who's your, who's your inspiration? Uh, we don't have Zach here with us today. But here, here's Guy. Oh, I'm sorry. Next, we went around with the three out of the four that are here, Good. and I think we're coming to the end of our time slot. So um, we are. Thank you, Guy Freeland, and uh, Jack Marty, and Caden uh, Kramer for joining us today. Friedenland, did oh, I say it right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm working on it. And um, yeah, you can find their music on all the uh, social websites, Spotify. What were some of the Apple others? Music, yeah. Apple Music. Apple Music. Squerve.com. Cool. Yeah, and Squerve.com. Yeah, Jack yep. made that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Jack did well, the We'll website. be looking for it, and uh, you know, we'll be following your career, and I'm sure Jim will uh, be more than happy to keep us updated. And uh, you know, as you guys get bigger and more popular, hopefully uh, we can get you back on the show sometime. And you know, you can tell us what life is like as you're climbing up the ladder. Hopefully. Yep. Thank you so much. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for having us. So a um, c- couple of previews then for next week. Uh, we'll do, um, da- I said Dick's Picks, but it's Dave's Picks 39. Right. I knew what you meant. From 83 uh, Philly. And then um, also I'll do a book review, one of the best books I've read on the Grateful Dead and their family, Owsley and Me by Roni Ginson Stanley. And a subtitle, My LSD Family. And it's a fa- fascinating read. It's a quick read. I'd encourage uh, everyone listening to get a hold of that book. Uh, so many of the Grateful Dead uh, books and biographies are written by men, you know, from a man's point of view. This actually gives the woman's point of view uh, what it was like to be, you know, part of the Grateful Dead family and helping Owsley manufacture millions of hits of LSD. <laughs> Kind of rubs off on you, I bet. Well, good. I will look forward to hearing about that, too. But, yeah, that'll be a great show as well. Uh, lots of other exciting things to be talking about in the coming weeks uh, as we roll uh, into the fall here. Uh, everybody's anxiously awaiting, obviously, Fish at Dicks and uh, all the other good music that we hope we'll be able to continue going forward. So thanks again to Squerve uh, for joining us today. Uh, thank you to our producer, Dan Humiston. Rob, unfortunately, uh, had to jump off. He had a meeting that he had to attend this evening and uh, says goodbye to everyone. He will be joining us again next week. Uh, on behalf of Jim Marty and Rob Hunt, this is Larry Mishkin saying thank you all for listening. Uh, be safe, have fun. We'll talk to you next week and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. 
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.